Okay, so the truth is, I am, I am somewhat of a masochist. Or at the very least, I am a glutton for punishment. I exercise until I hurt so bad that I can't move the next morning. I eat tuna straight from the can. And I choose to work with Lance Havens. <laughs> I mean, if, if you just don't like pain, then, then why would you do any of those things? And so it goes without saying that, uh, or it goes without surprise that um, I would choose to, um, uh, this fall, pay somebody to tell me what books to read and then every week test me on the reading that I had to do. And that just seems kind of crazy. But after 10 years of taking a break from school, I decided, you want to know what? I want somebody else to tell me what to do, as if I don't have enough of that with a wife and several kids and uh, coming to work with Angie and Lance. I, I, I need more of this. And so I finally decided to join back in, and this first class that I, I began taking is called the Practice of Ministerial Leadership. And it's really geared around this idea of having a proper theology of practical ministry. Now, I know what you're thinking. That really is an oxymoron. Like, why in the world? Like, in, in what world does practical ministry, the things that you do day by day by day, have anything to do with, with theology? Okay, that, those don't ever come together, right? Well, actually, I believe that they do. And this class has reminded me that it is important to have a ground proper theology. It's not just an academic or philosophical exercise to, to work on your own theology. So theology is a big word, but it's really pretty simple. Okay, ology, it's the study of. Uh, theo is from the, the Greek theos, which means God. It is the study God. It is knowing God. And this morning, I just quite simply, what I want to argue is that our understanding of who God is drastically, drastically forms and informs our worship. So let me, let me break it down like this. If you think God is vengeful or unfair or distant, it will affect how or even if you choose to worship Him. Fair statement? Okay, how about this? If you believe God is powerful and loving and active, your worship is likely to be a more deeper, sincere, and passionate form that you present to Him. So my question is, what do you think of God? This is not a, 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 a diary entry that really doesn't mean anything. This really plays out because what you think of God affects how you worship this morning and every day that you wake up. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give you one aspect of God's character that leads me personally to want to truly worship Him. 
And so I want to share with you several scriptures. So hang with me. I'm going to be moving around a lot. But the first one comes from Genesis chapter 3. You're going to be familiar with all of these. Genesis chapter 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, In the garden I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman woman you put here with me, she gave it to me, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. I mean, it's almost comical how it happens. God comes to Adam and says, What have you done? And he says, Hey, the, the woman, she's the one who did this. And so God turns to the woman and says, what have you done? She says, well, the serpent, he's the one who did this. And I just want to say, ah, paradise, literally paradise. That's where they were. They could do anything they wanted except for one. They had one job. Don't eat from the fruit from that tree. And they ate it. Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thought of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord grieved that he had made man on earth and his heart was filled with pain. Can you imagine that? Every inclination of man was only on evil all the time. And God was grieved. They couldn't come up with a good, positive, wholesome thought. All the time they leaned in to evil. It's what was in their hearts. It was what was was on their mouth. It was what was in their actions. Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come. Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered him, Take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. All the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took what, he, what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning with a tool. And they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. They were a few miles and a few days separated 
from the Red Sea which God parted for them to walk through to save them, deliver them from the Egyptians, from Pharaoh, and from his army. They were there. Walls of water. They walked through. A couple days later, they're at Mount Sinai. God is saying, I'm coming down to be with you. you got to keep your distance from the mountain because I'm a holy God. Moses goes up there. They're hanging out there a few days, and all of a sudden they're like, well, I guess God has left us. Forget the fact that there's the big mountain right there in front of them. Moses is up there on and they're like, we don't want to happen to Moses. We, we need somebody to worship. Grab your earrings. We're going to fashion something. And then they look at this, this idol that they had made and said, this is the God. These are the God that brought us out of Egypt. Numbers 13. Then Caleb silenced before Moses and said, We should take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack these people more than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. That night all the members of the community their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said, if only we had died in Egypt. Or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to just go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. God had let, they, they still had the taste of manna on their breath. Manna, stuff that is coming down from heaven to feed them. They are right there, pillar of fire at night, pillar of cloud in the day. God has said, okay, it is time to cross over the Jordan. I'm going to give the land that I promised to your forefathers. They send in spies. The spies come back and say, man, this land is awesome. It is filled with all this kind of fruit. You get the big the big grapes right there, you know, that they got hanging. Like, this is awesome. And two of them said that. The other ten said, oh, we can't do this. The people in Canaan were shaking in their sandals like they were afraid. They were locking the gates. We're all in big trouble. God has come with his people and they're going to take over this land. And the people who were like getting sunburned from the pillar of fire are like, oh, we can't do this. There's no way. We should go back to Egypt. Anybody wants to lead us back? Surely we can get back there. How do they think they're going to get back across? Okay, okay, one more. 2 Kings 17. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of nations the Lord had driven them out from before, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that was not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in their own towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and every spreading tree. 
At every high place they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them. They did wicked things that aroused, aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, Do not do this. They rejected the decrees and the covenants that He had made with their ancestors and the statues, uh, statutes that He had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols themselves and became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, Do not do as they do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to the starry host and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They preached divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing His anger. This is one of several accounts that lists the sins of the Israelites. The people of God, the people of God. The people of God who are doing all sorts of evil, not to mention that they are worshiping other idols and they are now sacrificing their own children to these idols, these gods that they have formed and are now worshiping. Okay, so I, j I just shared with you five snippets of, of just the uh, really part of the Old Testament. And I think the question has to be, what does this have to, anything to do with the theology of God? All I've really talked about is the sin of Israel. And, and I want to go on. I want us to get a healthy understanding of what the people of God look like. Just real quickly, Cain... He murdered his brother. Abraham, he lied about his marriage to Sarah twice. Sarah told her husband to sleep with another woman. And then after he did, he, he blamed him and hated her for it. Lot had a serious problem with choosing the wrong company. Rebecca was a crazy, manipulative wife. Jacob was pretty much a pathological liar. Rachel was a nomadic kleptomaniac. Ten sons of Jacob planned on killing their brother, but instead they sold him as a slave and then lied, framed, slash faked his death. Miriam had sibling jealousy and agreed for power. Samson continually chose a disloyal wife over a faithful God. Eli was a hopelessly incapable father who raised sons who became greedy, thieving priests who took advantage of women. David had a history of making mistakes, and in fact, he broke at least half of the Ten Commandments. Go back and look at that one. Solomon was at times a narcissistic king who had over 1,000 bed partners. The prophets, even as they spoke for God, struggled with impurity, depression, unfaithfulness, and broken families. And there you have it. This is the list of people who were chosen by God whom God led throughout, God made promises to these people, He spoke to these people, He delivered these people, He allowed miracles to take place for these people, and this is what you get. And so how does this inform, inform your worship today? Because 
because of this, my understanding of who God is is formed by who He chooses, who He uses, and whom He redeems. One of the reasons I worship God is because I find Him to be faithful to the unfaithful, to be kind to the broken, and to be forgiving of the sinner and redeeming of the hopeless. In Genesis chapter 3, we have Adam and Eve who are told not to eat of the fruit, and they do it. And God clothed them. He removed them from the temptation of being stuck in this broken world forever, and He gave them hope for a future when He spoke about a seed. That would come later on. In Genesis chapter 6, we have Noah's people who only thought about evil all of the time. And God chose not to destroy the world through the flood, but instead He saved the world through the flood. The flood is a story about a God who saves and a God who redeems. In Exodus 32, the Israelites are down below at the foot of the mountain and they have fashioned a golden calf. God could have left them or He could have destroyed them, but instead He is a God who is faithful and He sticks with them. In Numbers 13, after the spies come back and say, there's no way we can take this land. We want to go back to Egypt. We would rather be slaves to the Egyptians than to follow God. God gives them a 40-year sentence in the desert, but He still ushers them in to a land that He has promised to them. And in 2 Kings 17, after we read about all these heinous acts and the idolatry of the Israelites, God allows a remnant to survive. And ultimately, He says, I will be the one who offers my son as a sacrifice and it would be for them. Cain murdered his brother, but God spared his life. Abraham lied about his marriage, but God used that marriage to bless the world. Sarah let, that, let her husband sleep with another woman, but God allowed her to have her own son and blessed the world through her seed. Lot had serious problems with choosing bad company, but God rescued him from Sodom. Rebecca was a crazy, manipulative wife, but God allowed her son to receive the blessing she desired. Jacob was a petty, pathological liar, but God would change his name to Israel and his descendants would bear his name forever. Rachel was a kleptomaniac, but God gave her Joseph who would save the, her entire family and really the world. The ten sons of Jacob planned on killing their brother, but God allowed them to become the, ten tri the twelve tribes of Israel who would carry on for centuries. Miriam had a sibling a jealousy and a greed for power, but God allowed her song and her story 
to encourage people for generations. Samson continually chose to be dis, uh, chose a disloyal wife over a faithful God, but God used his power to overcome the enemy. Eli was a terrible father, but God gave him a second chance, and he would raise Samuel, a mighty prophet of God. David had a history of making all sorts of mistakes, but God gave him power to slay giants, wisdom to lead a nation, and a spirit to write songs that we still sing today. Solomon was a narcissistic king, but God used him to build a majestic temple that would really point to God. The prophets even though they struggled with impurity and depression and unfaithfulness, but God used them to prophesy to a coming Messiah. Every single time, from Adam and Eve to the Israelites, over and over and over again, they fall, they fail, they sin, they disobey, and God could have easily said, I'm done with this. It's over. I'm not going to do it anymore. But I read these stories and I cringe. I get frustrated. I shake my hands. Why did you eat that fruit? Why? Why would you cast this, this calf? God is on the mountain. He's led them through the desert. They're eating manna and quail that comes from heaven. And they're about to cross the Jordan and they say, I want to go back to Egypt. Are you kidding me? God is right there. And you want to just thump them on the head and kick them in the shins and say, stop it. And if I'm God, I'm saying I'm done with it. You can only think of evil all the time. I'm done with you. It's over. I tried it. Failed experiment. You want to worship your other gods in the desert? Fine. You can keep your desert have fun with it. But I come here to worship. And I worship because I believe. I believe that there is a God who works in brokenness. This world is broken. Which means it is just ready for God to work. And you're not here because you have everything together. You're here because you are broken. And your worship is transformed because you say, I have come to the right place. No surgeon, no hospital, no money. There's no cure except for God alone. The one who says, I will not throw you away. I won't give up on you. I know your thoughts. I know your past. And I'm going to work with you. I will not leave you. And that's why worship is a big deal to me. Because when I come here, I'm thinking about God didn't give up on me. God didn't give up on the Israelites or Adam and Eve or Abraham. He kept with them. And so I just want you to think this morning about who God is to you. I want you to believe that, that it's not a God of anger and judgment. It's a God who still says, I'm still with you. I'm not giving up on you. Don't give up on me. 
Don't believe the lies. Listen to my love for you. And that's why we're worshiping this morning. We are here this morning because God is really, really, really good. Doesn't that just make you excited? Like, I can't wait for our worship to continue on. We're about to gather around the table. And we're going to remember about the ultimate sacrifice of God through His Son, Jesus. And I want to worship. I want to say, God, thank you for that. Thank you for not being a God who says, I want you to sacrifice your children. You're a God who says, I will sacrifice mine. And so this morning, we're going to sing a song of invitation and of encouragement. And I want you to truly worship a God who's worthy. The God who redeems. Please come stand with me.